0: Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Ivana magovsvich liebisch She is the CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Vigil Neuroscience. The story actually starts with Amgen. The big biotech made a strategic decision to get out of neuroscience in 2019 That meant a couple of drug programs targeting TREM2 came up for sale. One is a monoclonal antibody, and the other is a small molecule. They're aimed at a neural inflammation target on microglia cells, which has been implicated in genome-wide association studies for rare neurological diseases and for larger indications like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Atlas Venture, which has a long-standing relationship with Amgen as a limited partner in its funds, sought to in-license the startups, which it thought had potential in a small, focused, asset-centric startup. That's where Ivana and Vigil Neuroscience enter the picture. She's an experienced executive, with stops at DIAX, Teva, and Ipsen along the way. She's been through some ups and downs in the early days of Vigil the first two years, a pair of venture financings, an IPO, a bearish stock market, and a partial clinical hold while the company and the FDA discuss dose ranges with its lead monoclonal for a rare disease called ALSP. I saw Ivana speak at a recent conference about the importance of building a strong team and a strong culture to navigate through a downturn. I think she has some valuable perspective for managing in these times. Now, before we get started, a word from the sponsor of The Long Run. Calgary is home to more than 120 life sciences companies, from emerging startups to established firms. With this critical mass of research, technical talent, and expertise, the city is an active hub for life sciences innovation. Technologies homegrown in Calgary are changing the face of healthcare. Cyantra is revolutionizing breast cancer detection using artificial intelligence derived algorithms. Nanotest is harnessing the power of nanotechnology to tackle chronic wounds and skin conditions. And this is only the beginning. Calgary's life sciences sector is projected to spend $428 million on digital transformation by 2024. If you're a bright mind or a bright company solving global health challenges, Calgary is the place for you. Take a closer look at why at calgarylifesciences.com. Now, please join me and Ivana on The Long Run. Ivana Magosvich-Liebich, welcome to The Long Run.
1: Thank you look i appreciate the time
0: so ivana i've uh, had you on my list as potential guests for this show since uh, you came out of stealth mode with vigil i believe it was back in december of 2020 uh, with this idea for precision neuroscience Uh, we haven't seen a whole lot of that concept um, in action we've seen the precision medicine concept in action in oncology Not so much in neuroscience, so I'm I'm excited to learn more about it uh, here in in an hour with you today.
1: Sounds great.
0: So just to get started, uh, I'd like to know a little bit about you. Um, Where where does your story begin? Where are you from?
1: So I was originally born in uh, Belgrade, Serbia. I was Yugoslavia back then. Um, And I came to the US to go to college. I was one of those scholarship kids. My father dropped me off uh, and said, good luck. And I've been in the States um, ever since. So right now going on uh, about 37 years.
0: Wow, Belgrade. So um, um, I know I don't want to be rude, but uh, what years are we talking about when you were growing up there?
1: So I was born in sixty-seven. So we're talking about sixty-seven to about eighty-one, and then when I was fourteen, my father decided to move us out of Yugoslavia and moved us to Portugal, where I went to American high school in Portugal, actually from eighty-one to eighty-five, and then, as I said, as a full scholarship kid, landed in actually at the Wheaton College right outside of Boston in nineteen
0: eighty-five. Okay, but now those years were. Um... Peaceful in the former Yugoslavia. Right.
1: Yes, yes, they were actually. I had a wonderful childhood. My mother was an accomplished chemical engineer. My father was a businessman. Uh, they always encouraged me to approach my life and career with focus and tenacity. I think my father was a bit of a visionary. I think he knew that even though we were living extremely well in the 70s in Yugoslavia, that it was due to the amount of money that US was pouring into an economy that was not sustainable. And his uh, vision was to get us out of there and uh, provide us with other opportunities. And um, he traveled; he had the privilege to travel to the U.S. Um, and really loved the country and the opportunities. And that was kind of his goal in life: is to make sure that both my sister and I ended up here.
0: Uh huh. And is your sister younger or older?
1: She is younger, and she's also here. Uh, she lives not far from me. She is a clinical psychologist.
0: Huh. So um, what kind of school did you attend? um, Both, uh, you know, starting out and then in Portugal.
1: So in Portugal, I went to an American international high school of Lisbon, uh, which was great because it was an extremely diverse school, small school. Um, When I came in ninth grade, I actually barely spoke English. Uh, so it was an interesting few months to get up to speed. But uh, by the time I finished, I was valedictorian of my class. And then, as I mentioned, I went to Wheaton College undergraduate, got my uh, bachelor's um, in, of uh, arts in chemistry and biology. And then from there, went to do a Ph.D. at uh, Harvard and then ultimately uh, decided that I was really, really interested in how we translate science into medicines for patients and decided to go into patent law. And then ultimately patent law led me to biotech where I've spent about a quarter of a century now.
0: Hmm. Now, w- when did you first kind of get the, uh, the bug for science? Uh, was this early on?
1: Yeah, it was, it was actually in, in, in high school. Um, it's when I really got interested in science, I had an amazing biology teacher, um, and I really wanted to explore it further and then obviously in college I really had an opportunity was a small college to um, have my um, kind of classes tailored to where my uh, interest. And this was when the whole biotech field was exploding. Um, I actually did uh, an internship in my senior year in college at Genetics um, Institute and just really developed a love for science and genetics. And actually my PhD was in human genetics at Harvard.
0: How, how did you end up coming to Harvard? Um, and and what was that um, transition like for you?
1: So, you know, (laughs) that's interesting you ask that. You know, in my household, um, it was always my mother had a master's. My dad was a lawyer. There was no question that, um, you know, a Ph.D. was in my my future. And so when I finished uh, Wheaton College, um, I was applying to Ph.D. programs, was accepted at Harvard, really liked uh, the program um, at that time uh, there and decided that that was the path that I wanted to take. And, um, you know, although I liked academia a lot, I realized very early in my PhD career that I really wanted to figure out how to translate science into medicine, which then led me ultimately to become the part of the biotech uh, ecosystem through actually um, IP and patent law, um, which was very unusual when I actually did it. Um, I um, graduated, got my PhD in 94. And this was just the time when the whole biotech scene here in Boston, Cambridge, was exploding, right? Uh, And there was a clear need for um, IP attorneys with a science background. But I remember when I told my... uh, graduate um, advisor that I was actually going to law school and now going to do a postdoc. It was an interesting conversation. Um, and uh, But now it's, you know, I talk at Harvard all the time about uh, alternative careers to PhD students. It's well accepted.
0: When you um, say interesting and- conversation, this didn't go over very well?
1: Well, I think it was a little bit of a surprise, right? Um, I think I was the first graduate student from the lab. um, And, you know, understandably, um, it was not necessarily the expectation. But I explained that, you know, what my desires were and why I was really drawn in this direction. And now, you know, we chat all the time and um, she asked me about IP advice. So it all worked out well at the end. but um, that's how uh, that's how it started, and I, you know, I actually started as a technical specialist in a law firm. Again, that's now a normal path. Um, it was very unusual at that time. So what I did is they um, brought me in to help them, and you know, help with the science. And they put me through law school at night. Again, you know, coming from from Serbia and not having uh, the money to do it myself, that was a great way. For me to get my education and i also got was privileged to work with some incredible companies along the way and be there outside counsel. one of them was you know biogen i was actually at the avanex launch party so i'm actually dating myself <laughs> and, one, and one of my clients was tkt transkaryotic therapies and they actually asked me to come in in-house and, you know, I jumped immediately at the opportunity because I really felt like I wanted to be right there where it was happening, where can these we, drugs were being developed.
0: Can we just go back just a little bit? You mentioned, sure. I think, an internship at Genetics Institute yeah. that was earlier on. And I, I know a little bit, a bit about this company. It's, it predates me on the beat, but I've, I've met so many people from the Boston community who are mm-hmm. alumni. Of that mm-hmm. company, it really seemed to have a pretty special culture there in the nineties, eighties, um, and nineties. Um, what did you observe there, kind of as a young person, and, and did that like help, uh, you know, guide you on this path into biotech?
1: Yeah, definitely. I would say I was in Dr. Gordon's lab, and as I said, I was a you know a young. Um, senior year of my um college um you know intern working more as a really as a technician, right? We were working on transgenic mice at that point. And I just found that so fascinating and exciting the, the science, the technology, the vibe in the company. Um, you know, everybody was talking about how can we, you know, how can we translate this into into medicines? And I, I it just really resonated with me. And it was cutting edge at that time, and I really felt like that's that was the world I wanted to be a part of.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was team science. It was good yeah. science, but it was also highly collaborative.
1: It was. It was very, very collaborative. Absolutely. And again, you know, that's not something that necessarily happened in academia, It certainly was not happening in academia um, when I was in, you know. Um, at at doing my phd and i just felt like that's what i wanted to do. i always say you know we all stand and fall as uh, as teams.
0: Yeah. So you uh you get started uh in the industry as a patent attorney.
1: Yep.
0: And you're working for a variety of clients. It sounds yep. like interesting work. Lots of people yep. doing interesting things around yes. the Boston area. Yep. Um How did you end up moving uh, into more managerial type roles?
1: Yes, so um, that I have to thank um, DIAX and Henry Blair. Um, I actually from TKT went um, to DIAX where I actually spent 12 years and was privileged to see a drug actually from the lab all the way to the market. And I always say, look, the highlight of my career was having HAE patient come and hug us and tell us we change their lives. That is something that absolutely drives me, gets me up in the morning every day. And that's what, you know, we want to accomplish a short vigil for patients with neurodegenerative uh, diseases. Now, so
0: HAE for those not familiar is hereditary okay. angioedema, is that right? Yes.
1: Yes, it's it's a it's a rare disease, and uh, so our first drug was Calbator. And when I joined DIAX as a VP of Intellectual Property, that drug was just uh, getting into a phase two open label, open label study, and it was discovered uh, through the page display technology that DIEX had. And you know the beauty of a small company, and at that time, you know when I joined, I think. Diox was maybe, maybe 70, 80 people is that you can do a lot of different things and you get exposed to a lot of different things. And obviously IP was critical to Diox's success because, uh, you know phage display was critical to uh the the business strategy of the company not only to use it for our own internal development and development of you know important medicines but also we knew that the technology was so powerful and that there was no way that we could explore the full potential of that technology in our own and we really wanted to make sure that we uh Allowed others to uh, use it as well, but in order to that to do that, we had to have a freedom to operate, and page um, display was a patent minefield at that point. And so, I spent the first couple of years really helping uh, get all the cross licensing, get a freedom to operate, help you know really design and that um, library that we had, which was ultimately the best in the industry. It was a fab page display library with Dr. Bob Ladner. And that became a licensing and funded research business that the had that had 75 licenses and collaborators. You and said just- it was
0: a minefield. I was wondering, like, how do you keep track of 75 different licenses and make sure everybody's, you know, adhering to the, the letter of the law? And
1: <laughs> Yeah, no, I didn't mean the licenses were minefield. I meant the IP um, backdrop. Uh, so actually DIAX had a Ladner patent portfolio, which was a very broad phage display portfolio because uh, Bob Ladner was one of the inventors of a phage display. And so we kind of had uh, a broad IP that everybody else needed in order to practice phage display but we wanted to go into antibody phage display and there there were a lot of ip from other companies and so rather than fight which some of them were doing at that point my point my view was look there is plenty of opportunity here for everybody we should compete with each other on the merits of our technology and our libraries not fight in the courtroom so i actually went out and proactively use the Ladner patent portfolio to cross-license uh, all the IP that DIAX needed in order to have a freedom to operate.
0: I wonder if there's a lesson here for contemporaries in, oh, I don't know, some areas like CRISPR or <laughs> <laughs> other areas where there's a powerful technology and a few companies have the early lead, but you know everybody wants to use it and really should.
1: Exactly, uh, and so that's what we did. And then it became an extremely successful licensing program because as I said, our library was best in class. Um, we had the fab library that was extremely good and there are many drugs now on the market uh, that um, actually came out of that library. Um, you know, clone Mark Serrano, and a couple of others actually had marketed products that came out of Dioxide's Page display library. So it um, was a really rewarding. And I did that for a few years. And then, you know, um, we were a small team doing a lot of things. And every time Henry asked um, who wants to do this, I would raise my hand <laughs> and, um, I, you know, I went from being a VP of intellectual property to general counsel and then ultimately chief business officer. And at the, you know, toward the end, a chief operating officer, responsible actually for commercialization of our first product,
0: which was Calvin. Ivana, this is an important point. You said when there were opportunities to um, stretch beyond, say, Mm -hmm. your comfort zone or the things you had done previously, you raised your hand. And and I don't I think this is something that, you know, doesn't always come naturally for people. Um, yeah, you, you hear it especially with women. Well, yes. Why? Uh, why do you think you did that? And what? What was it? Was there something about DIEX that made it possible or for you to do yeah, that? I
1: think I think there were several things. Right. I think from a very young age, as I said, my parents really kind of made sure that I understood that um you know, kind of the sky was the limit, and I really had to push myself and see where those limitations were for for me. Um, you know, um my mom uh, used to say to me, you know, shoot for the moon because if you don't make, it, you're gonna be among the stars. Um, and so that's something from a very young age that I was taught. Uh, my father had only uh, two daughters, so I think we were in a certain way treated like, uh, you know, boys. Um, so that, and my mom was an extremely accomplished scientist as well. Uh, and then, yes, I think the culture at Dykes was a culture where you were allowed to, um, you know, um, maybe make mistakes and that was okay. And we were all in it together and we were learning. And so it was a comfortable environment for me to feel that I could, I could stretch myself. And I do, I do spend a lot of time now, um, talking to women about this point, because to your point, I think a lot of people are not comfortable doing that, especially women. And they always tend to, um, Say, oh, I'm. I don't think I'm ready for this role, or I need a few more years, and and you know, by the time I always tell them, by the time you're ready, you already passed that role. So continue to stretch yourself. It certainly has been very valuable for me in my in my career. Learned tremendously um, through those. You know, yes, I have a lot of scars on my back uh, to show for the 25 years in this industry, but it's been an incredible experience and incredible. Opportunity, and again, you know, I had an incredible mentor in in Henry Blair, who you know um, really was all about what can you do, not you know who you are, how old are you, or what degrees you have. So, um, phenomenal experience for sure.
0: Now, when you got one of these new opportunities, how did you uh, how did you manage? Did you just like? <laughs> grab all the materials you could read to get your hands on or talk to people who had done it before, or how how did you uh, learn?
1: Yeah. Well, certainly when I became the general counsel, I made sure that I was surrounded by people um, who knew what they were doing. Right. Um, I always had, um, my uh, outside counsel to rely on. You know, I think one of the important things um, certainly that I've followed in my career, I always say the moment you think you know everything, you're the most dangerous person in the world. So, you know, knowing what I knew and knowing not what I didn't know, surrounding myself with people who had the experience and not being afraid to ask and ask questions and also not being afraid to say, you know what, I don't know, but I will go find out. And i'll be back to you and that served me extremely well so as a as a as a general counsel that was certainly how um and you learn learned on the job i had you know some very interesting experiences as a general counsel um and um, in my in my career you know things i thought i would never have to deal with in a biotech environment but i certainly did and Um, you know, with the right advice. um, And, you know, sometimes a lot of things are also common sense. Uh, It worked out uh, out really well. And then, yes, as I took more opportunity and different kinds of opportunities, again, always had kind of a group of people that I surrounded myself with that I could always reach out to and talk to and um, ask questions if I had them.
0: When you say things that you didn't think you'd have to deal with at a biotech company can, can you say a little more like are you talking about like person personnel type things yeah, weird exactly, things
1: exactly exactly things like that you know not you just, patent law <laughs> no no not patent law no that that I had uh, pretty well uh, under my belt no um but yes certain you know, things that you just never think you would experience, but you do and you get through them and it and, and all ultimately works out, uh works out at uh, at the end. But yeah, um one day look maybe I'll talk to you about writing a book.
0: Okay. Uh, about
1: 25 <laughs> years in this industry.
0: Okay. So um you I, I know you did a, a stint at uh Ipsen after uh DIAX. Um and then you came to uh atlas so this is like making the move to entrepreneurship how did you um decide that you know maybe you wanted to do one of these startups and, and uh start it from from scratch
1: uh, I, I actually did and by the way between diax and epson there was also four years at tava um, oh, okay. Uh, I'm running global business development on the specialty side. I was actually hired by Jeremy Levin to kind of help him move the Titanic in a different direction. Uh, they were generic company with Copaxon and, uh, you know, they had so a lot of money, and Jeremy had a vision of building a business, you know, that was a specialty innovative business based uh, around Copaxon, and that's what I was brought in uh, uh, to oh, do wow. I
0: Jeremy's a great guy, former guest on the podcast. And he reminds me one of the few people to go from one of those really big companies back to a a biotech startup and and proud and happy to do so.
1: Yes, I think he shares my passion of, uh, you know really uh, trying to build something for scratch and create medicines for patients, doing it quickly, right? Because some of these patients cannot wait. And so we got to do a lot of things with a sense of urgency, which just does not necessarily exist in larger companies. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so I spent several years at Teva and then um, at Ipsen in more of a BD strategic roles. And yeah, look, I was really missing that uh, small agile you know, ability to pivot quickly, ability to really build a team from scratch, ability to uh, set the right culture uh, from the beginning, because I believe it's all about the people and the culture. Um, And um, so that's why I decided when, you know, COVID hit and had the opportunity to reflect on my career and think about what it is that really motivates me. I realized that This was something that I really wanted to do, and um, I had the privilege to partner with Bruce Booth and Atlas to bring uh, two amazing assets out of um, Amgen um, and start Vigil in the summer of 2020.
0: Calgary is home to more than 120 life sciences companies, from emerging startups to established firms. With this critical mass of research, technical talent, and expertise, the city is an active hub for life sciences innovation. Technologies homegrown in Calgary are changing the face of healthcare. Cyantra is revolutionizing breast cancer detection using artificial intelligence-derived algorithms. Nanotest is harnessing the power of nanotechnology to tackle chronic wounds and skin conditions. And this is only the beginning. Calgary's life sciences sector is projected to spend $428 million on digital transformation by 2024. If you're a bright mind or bright company solving global health challenges, Calgary is the place for you. Take a closer look at why at calgarylifesciences.com. And if you like listening to the long run, check out my writing at timmermanreport.com. You can subscribe for a month, a quarter, or a year at a time to get my weekly front points column, coverage of emerging startups, and a wide range of original contributing writers who bring perspective on relevant issues to biotech executives and investors. Group discounts are available. Go to TimmermanReport.com and hit subscribe. Amgen made the strategic decision, I think they announced it in the fall of 2019, that they were getting out of neuroscience. So they they had a bunch of assets that were now going to be up for licensing atlas knew about these assets because uh, they had amgen as an lp i think in, in their funds yes. so like they they were familiar uh with the trem 2 biology programs what did what did you see when you looked at the, the set of neuroscience assets and what excited you
1: well i saw so this is a we're talking about a trem 2 um, agonist, both an antibody and a first in class small molecule. And what really excited me about it is that this was the first, you know, kind of uh, tractable and compelling molecular target for modulating microglia biology. Um, I also uh, was excited ab- about a precision based approach to neuro. And what I mean by that, we really wanted to go after diseases where there was a strong genetic, you know, mechanistic biochemical association to microglia dysfunction. Um, And also it was a, our first indication is a rare disease. It's a rare neurodegenerative disease. And, uh, you know, I have a passion for uh, rare diseases that comes from my days at DKT and DIAX. And so it kind of everything came together. And obviously these were extremely high quality um, assets that don't come along very often. Um, and so I felt like that I could build a team and, um, you know, try to really deliver something for for these patients. And that's what um, made me ultimately decide to move in this direction and help Bruce in license these, and then go from there to build, uh, to build the team. So actually our two year anniversary is on July 10th of this year. Um, I'm very proud of the team i, I built. I, I believe that the role of the CEO is to build an A-plus team and empower them to execute by setting the right culture. And we're now uh, about 50, 50 people. We call ourselves vigilantes. We work extremely hard. And in 18 months, we were able to go from inception of the company to the clinic. And then we also went public this first week in January of this, uh, of this year.
0: Vigil Neuroscience Vigilantes. I like it. <laughs> you got to laugh at it <laughs> to get to get through this. Yeah.
1: And the uh, Vigil, actually the name Vigil comes from, you know, uh, harnessing the vigil into microglia because microglia are the sentinel cells of the brain immune system, right? And they're responsible for maintaining the cellular homeostasis in the brain. And uh, that is why we actually came up with uh, with the name.
0: Well, there's also, you know, when I think of vigil, I think of, you know, candlelight vigils and, you know, showing up and being dedicated and caring for your fellow men and women, and like it takes a whole lot of um, tenacity and and patience uh, to to uh, develop a new drug for people in need. Um, so. That,
1: that's for
0: sure. Um, now, why did you think it was important to go to do a precision approach to neuroscience? Now, I, I think just for, you know, at a very high level, people know that, uh, you know, we haven't had any success for uh, common neurodegenerative disease, Alzheimer's, really at the top of the list, but others too, very limited treatment options. And I think what we see oftentimes is just really heterogeneous patient populations get all thrown together together. In clinical trials, uh, they look kind of similar in terms of how the, their symptoms manifest, um, but we don't have really great um, detailed underlying biology to sort patients and, and, um, and, and targeted therapies to treat them accordingly. So is that is that kind of the missing link, the piece here for, for neuroscience, where you think it needs to go as a field?
1: Yeah, I, I look, we believe that precision medicine holds an enormous potential in the treatment of neurodegenerative diseases. You know, in the contrast to the traditional kind of one-drug-fits-all approach, this approach allows us to drive into the primary drivers of the disease. Um, and we, we've seen that, right, be very successful in oncology. For example, in Alzheimer's disease, um, which is the most common form of dementia, and is, high, is a highly, as you mentioned, heterogeneous disease, the precision medicine approach takes into account individual genetic variables and factors and can ultimately lead to more favorable, we believe, patient outcomes. And you know, we strongly believe that microglia biology is becoming a new frontier for CNS uh, drug discovery, where there is a very strong evidence of genetically linked microglia dysfunction impacting both small and large patent, uh, patient populations, right? And so we are taking that approach um, and we, we really wanna follow the genetics because we believe that that helps us, you know, minimize the downstream translational risk, but even more importantly, gets us to that proof of concept really quickly.
0: Because I think- the, What do the normal microglia cells do? in a healthy person and how do they sometimes go awry
1: right so um the trem2 is a cell surface receptor on microglia it's a key environmental sensor in the brain it's actually the receptor that senses the damage um, and it does then transduces the damage to another membrane protein called dab12 and ultimately through phosphorylation of, of sick, drives a number of these downstream processes that help maintain the homeostasis in the brain we know that trm2 is critical for cns uh, is because there is direct evidence that comes from human genetic disease. There's actually a disease called Nasuhakula, which is an autosomal recessive disease caused by trem 2 loss of function mutation. Um, and this disease results in a devastating neurodegenerative disease. So what trem 2 actually does, trem 2 activation is actually necessary to convert microglia from their homostatic state to a disease associated microglia or dams. And it is these dams that confer a neuroprotective phenotype on microglia. And it is the dams that are actually the ones that are capable of removing the debris and plaques. And so if TREMP 2 there's a loss of function, then these microglia become compromised They're not able to convert into dams. And that leads to accumulation of debris and ultimately to neurodegeneration.
0: Hmm. The debris can roll downhill, so to speak, and accumulate and cause some of that disease you're talking about. Exactly. Um, And so that gave people the idea that if you could make an agonist to TREM2, you could restore the dams and restore some of that normal homeostatic function. Correct. Um, Now, you mentioned uh, that that Amgen had a monoclonal and a small molecule against the same target to do the the same thing as an agonist. How does that work?
1: So, we have actually, we're the only company that has two modalities. So, we have a monoclonal antibody TREM2 agonist, as well as I mentioned, first in class small molecule TREM2 agonist. So, they're both designed to activate the, the receptor. We feel that the antibody is extremely well positioned to go into these rare microgliopathies. These are the diseases of brain matter where the blood-brain barrier integrity is compromised. So the blood-brain barrier is leaky, which positions it extremely well for the antibody therapeutics. So that's where we are, our first indication, because our antibody VGL-101 is the most advanced asset we have, which as I mentioned, this is phase one. The first indication we're going after is called ALSP, stands for adult onset leukoencephalopathy with axonal spheroids and pigmented glia. It's a mouthful. Um, <laughs> it is a rare neurodegenerative disease, huge need, um, you know, nobody working in this space. Uh, we feel that the antibody is extremely well positioned there because there is a very strong genetic linkage Um that um, makes us confident that we're going r- after the right disease. And actually I mentioned before, Nassu Hakula, well, actually ALSP looks very, very similar to NASA actually similar onset, similar presentation, and similar <clears throat> progression. So very excited. And we think that with the proof of concept here, which we think we can have very quickly because there's some very good imaging and fluid biomarkers that are, are gonna allow us to get to that proof of concept quickly. We're actually gonna be the first company to have data in a patient population with a trem 2 agonist. We think that then there is a read through from LSP into other rare microgliopathies such as Crab and MLD. So we are positioning- now, Ivana, that does, does this yep.
0: monoclonal antibody uh, cross the blood brain barrier yes, with, with any degree of efficiency? Because I know that's been a big challenge.
1: Yes, so it does. It does cross the blood-brain barrier. It does cross with the blood-brain barrier the same way as um, most other antibodies in a sense that it, it does get into the brain. And we know that uh, it engages the target because we have the data from you know non-human primates. But this is why I'm saying it, rare, rare microgliopathies make a lot of sense here because in the areas of active disease, you will have that leakage. And so it will allow you to get even more um, antibody into the areas where you would want it to be. So that's why we are. We think that antibody makes a lot of sense to position in these indications. And then our small molecule, which is first in class in a sense that we're the only company that has a small molecule currently in development. We're actually in IND enabling studies and we expect the small molecule in the clinic next year is it's orally bioavailable, highly CNS penetrant. Uh, this molecule has a differentiated MOA. I mean, it, it results in the same signaling, but it does bind in a different place um, on on TREM two, which I think provides us with a lot of option, optionality. We think that that molecule can be a game changer in larger indications, such as um, you know Alzheimer's uh, disease. But again, our approach is a precision based approach. So what we believe um, is prudent to do is first go after uh, TREM2 variants and some other variants that have been associated with you know, a higher likelihood of developing disease and then having a more aggressive progression. So there's specific TREM2 variants that um, Uh, are associated with uh, Alzheimer's disease. And we think that that beachhead approach makes a lot of sense, starting with those learning more and then expanding as we, as we learn through our clinical studies.
0: Got it. Got it. Now, I I know there are a couple of other companies that are working on the trim to um, space, Elector and Denali out on the West coast, but I I don't know of too many others. Um, This doesn't, are, are there others? Has, has this space gotten more crowded?
1: Um, not that um, I am aware of. I mean, there there's some early efforts that we're aware of on the small molecule um, side, but very early. We understand it's lead optimization from some, you know, private, small private companies. Um, I, I'm not aware of others that are working on the uh, to outside of the ones that you mentioned. And as I said, we are the only company that has a small molecule that's currently in development.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, I want to come back to something you said earlier about um, <laughs> the difference with companies being having an A-plus team and an A-plus culture. Mm-hmm. Why do you say that?
1: Because I, you know, I've been in this industry for now, as I said, almost 25 years, and I've seen it you know, what um, amazing teams can do, even with the most challenging problems. Um, and I've also seen what, um, you know, what happens if you don't have the right team and the right people and the right culture. And so that's really, really important to me. I always say that, you know, uh, culture, is strategy for breakfast.
0: Oh, the uh, famous Peter Drucker quote. <laughs>
1: Yes. Yes, because it, and it it is really true. And culture starts at the top. And, you know, the culture that I believe in is that we all stand and fall together as one team. And we have a culture here where we celebrate failures. And what I mean by that is that uh, we are very open, very transparent. We talk about things that are not going well. We talk about experiments that don't work because the only advantage a small company has over a big company is ability to pivot quickly. And so you really have to have that ability. And the the way that comes is people are not afraid to talk about things that are not working or are not progressing and making sure that we can make those pivots, right? Because we know that clinical development is not a straight line. Science is not a straight line. It's twists and turns. And you want to have a team that's agile and comfortable to talk about it. I always say that a cover-up is worse than any crime. Hmm. And and I also always say, you know, truth to power. Those are really, really important things if you want to be successful in this business.
0: Well, you know, talking about startup culture, you got me thinking um, another important thing is that Focus. That intensity. Mm-hmm. The fact that you you've got two programs. This is what your company does. And if yes. they if they fail, uh, and, and and failure is inevitable. I mean, it'll happen in, oh. at some point or another. You're going to have hard times. It's yep. nature of the business. But when it does, like you've got to dust yourself off pivot yep. figure it out like it's do or die like the, the company rides on this it isn't like a bigger company where maybe have a yeah. dozen other products well the product fails well you know it happens and people drop it and move on mm-hmm. like, that that it, focused yeah, intensity it's about the is, why
1: yeah it's about the why look right it's the why that drives us right and the why here is helping patients with these diseases because we can talk about what and how all day but it's really ultimately the why and you're absolutely right there are always ups and downs and, you know, you 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 make progress and then you have a setback. But one thing that, you know, drives all of us every day is that we're trying to do this because we're trying to bring a meaningful medicine to these patients who have absolutely nothing. ALSP patients right now have nothing. And these patients, once they're diagnosed in their 40s or 50s, they are in a wheelchair three years from the first onset of symptoms and they die seven or eight years from the onset of symptoms. So where this is really a race against time. Um, and that's why, you know, I always say we do everything with a sense of urgency because these patients can't wait.
0: And you have you've
1: got a, right to pick you've up. Got
0: a, you've got a small team of people here and um, they depend on each other to do this really interesting and hard thing. That yep. is going to be meaningful for patients if it works.
1: Absolutely,
0: 100%. That's what binds binds your culture together, isn't it? Yes,
1: yeah, hundred percent. And you know, we actually, because we were the first company to ever do anything this, we from day one um, started working on patient advocacy you know, awareness, KOL awareness. We've done a tremendous amount in the two years that we've been around. We actually helped start the first patient association called Sisters Hope. We stood up the first LSP awareness website, LSP info. Um, we have um, a natural history study ongoing to learn, really learn more about the progression of this disease and the patient, the patient journey. We have uh, a global registry that's ongoing, we have partnered with genetic testing companies to make sure that when these patients are identified, we uh, we learn about them um, because we really wanna make sure that we have the patients ready to go when we start our clinical um, studies because without patients, obviously we can't. We can't do anything. So we had tremendous effort and extremely extremely rewarding. We just celebrated the first ALSP awareness month, which was this past March, uh, where we you know led several bridges across Massachusetts to recognize uh, recognize the disease and increase the the awareness. So this is one patient at a time, um, and you're absolutely right. That's what we live and breathe um, every every day.
0: Now important as it is to lay down, um, those, those cultural bonds to, to strengthen them from the early days, as I think you have, um, culture is going to be tested. Um, I think it's it's been tested for lots of companies, pretty much everybody in a down market this year. Um, the, the, everybody's stocks are down. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, how have you, um, had to adjust?
1: So look, um our, the thing that we're doing is, and I say this to everybody who will listen to me, um including our investors it's it's for us, it's focus, execution, and you know being fiscally responsible, making sure that you know we're using our cash extremely wisely, and we're thoughtful about how we extend our runway. Um, I think the other thing that's really important is making sure that you know our stockholders and everybody understands what are our timelines, what are our value inflection points, that we're clearly communicating those, that we're setting the right expectation in this market and that we're delivering against those, right? And that's how we're gonna survive this. And look, I'm very transparent with my team. We talk a lot about what's happening out there, why it's happening, uh, but you know the fundamentals of this company are unchanged, regardless of what the broader market is. Uh, we've been executing; we will continue to execute. And as I said, that's what drives that team. They ultimately want to bring medicines to these patients, and so we try to focus on what's important and make sure that we have sufficient cash to get to those uh, deliverables and those value inflection points. So we're very thoughtful about where we spend and how we spend.
0: You still have well over hundred million in cash last I looked, but your market valuation, you're one of these many, many companies that are trading at levels below your cash. Um, What's that like? I mean, is is it hard on your morale and your team's morale?
1: Mm, No, we don't focus on that. Look, I've been um, in this industry long and as this is not a first down cycle I've lived through, Um, you know, we're here to deliver um, good clinical data and try to uh, get a drug to market. That's what everybody's focused on. And if we can do that, uh, we will ultimately be successful and return, you know, money to our investors. And so the focus for us is short-term on execution and long-term on making sure that we can bring these medicines to to patients. And, yeah, we don't get distracted. Um, I certainly don't look at the stock price every day. I don't think that's relevant. What's relevant and what's important is that our fundamentals are extremely strong and that we continue to execute on what we've told our investors and our patients and you know our board that we're going to do. And that's what so- matters.
0: So what are some of these key uh, milestones or value inflection points that you're looking at, focused on that, you know, you got to believe like if you hit these things, you do what you say you're going to do, things are going to turn out better.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so uh, upcoming uh, this year for us is obviously top line data from our phase one study in healthy volunteers. It's ongoing now with our antibody, Vigil 101, uh, which is going to happen in the fourth quarter. Uh, in the fourth quarter, we'll also be starting our first phase two study the proof of concept study in ALSP patients, which we'll then be reading out uh, next year because this is a six month proof of concept study, we actually can see changes MRI changes, uh, white matter lesion changes in these patients uh, that are quantifiable in a uh, six-month timeframe, and also changes in some of the fluid biomarkers. So we're very confident that we'll be able to show that. Um, And then also our small molecule, which I mentioned, is um, progressing extremely well, and it will be in the clinic uh, next year. So those are kind of the big things uh, that we're looking to accomplish in the next uh, 12, uh, 12 to 18 months. And um, we do have uh, actually as of our last, uh, a little bit more than hundred million. We actually, um, as, as of the last quarter reporting, we had 163 million in cash and that gets us into 2024, which is after all of these um, uh, milestones that I've just mentioned.
0: Mhm mhm why do you think the market has turned so uh severely negative on biotech
1: well i i think there's a lot of um outside factors right macro factors that have nothing to do with without industry that certainly are not helping and then you know we've always had this um in the past two uh years of you know, real excitement and exuberance in the space. Um, And then, you know, things happen. Uh, Maybe there's, uh, you know, a lot of negative readouts because we all kind of tend to forget in those years of exuberance that ultimately, you know, only about 10% of the the things we're working on are actually gonna make it through, right? So the, the failure rate, which is part of this industry, um, is going to happen. Um, some people don't realize how long it takes to get um, medicines uh, to market, and so I think you know what's going to turn us is what turns us every time, which is you know good results, um, some exciting you know potential M and A activity, uh, more clarity from the regulatory agencies. Those are the kind of things that tend to bring us back. And you know, this past two year's we also have a lot of biotech companies out there. I believe the number was 700 biotech companies that are public, which is a number that's pretty large. And so there's possibly going to be some consolidation there as well, which could ultimately all be good because if one plus one can equal three, that's always a good outcome. Uh, But, you know, we're here to stay. This industry is going nowhere because we all know this is where innovation comes from. And we know that this is where, you know, uh, innovative medicines, um, especially for some of these top diseases that um, larger companies don't necessarily tend to spend time on, ultimately come from. So I have every faith that we will continue. And also, I think, The science has progressed to a stage now where there's no turning back, right? I mean, I think the leaps that have been made in the recent years are just going to continue to push us forward. So I'm very um, committed to this space and really excited about what the future holds, not just in neurodegeneration, but across the board.
0: I share the long-term optimism. Uh, The science that I get to see almost every day is just mind-blowing. It's so far beyond where it was um, 10 years ago, uh, even five years ago. Uh, And the number of products coming out that are really helping people uh, who had no previous options. I mean, um, I see it on a regular basis now. I want to ask you about the regulatory interactions that you have. Um, you know, people in the CNS space uh, remember the uh, you didn't mention it, but the the Adohelm debacle. <laughs> um, I mean, some people thought this might be really positive for the space in that even if they didn't really like that application, um, they it, it was seen as potentially um, opening up a new era of uh, openness, I guess you'd say, at the agency to biomarker driven approaches to, mm-hmm. to neuroscience that the, there might be a silver lining here. I, I don't, well, well, how would you, how is this playing out for a company like yours, your interactions with the, the FDA? I, I,
1: look, I, I, I think every, um, every um, asset, every clinical development program is you know a fact based, right? So I I don't think we can read through what happened um, there with what's happening um, throughout. I do think that the agency o- is open to um, you know uh, biomarkers as surrogate um, endpoints. Uh, we certainly have imaging. Um, that we think can potentially be a surrogate endpoint, and the agency's left the door open to that discussion. Obviously, it's all data driven, as you know. Look, and it's going to be the totality of the of the data that's generated. Um, so, you know, I think the we have a good relationship with the agency. We plan to continue uh, to have that kind of a relationship, and ultimately, the data will take us where the data takes us. Right. Um, and that's why we do these um, do these studies, uh, and we try to do the best we can to generate the best uh, quality data. So, um you know it these are all individual driven by individual facts, and I think it it's very dangerous territory to try to say, well, this is what happened there, and therefore this has a, you know o- overall either positive or negative impact on, um, the space as a whole?
0: Well, part of the reason I ask is that investors tend to sometimes move in packs, (laughs) right. And, um, and when they've been burned, um, by, you know, that story or maybe something else, um, they, they tend to, you know, move in lockstep. Um, but, um, I, I, you know, we also just today saw, you know, another, negative readout on the uh, the amyloid hypothesis, an antibody from uh, Roche-Dentech that um, people had pretty high hopes for, uh, at least some did, uh, for the treatment of Alzheimer's. Um, didn't work. Um, and uh, you know, I guess, you know, does that, I mean, I guess that could work in a, in a positive sense for a company like yours, because, um, you know, that's an area that has, drawn a whole lot of time and attention and resources, um, and there's been repeated failures there. Does this maybe create a little space or openness for some of these more precision uh, biology-based approaches?
1: I absolutely uh, think so. I do think that people are starting to recognize that just like as we talked about oncology, I think in NORA, we really need to focus on a precision based approach. And I do think that people are starting to pay a lot more attention to those kind of approaches and understand that, um, you know, if we want to increase the likelihood of success, we really got to stop thinking that one drug fits all approach is going to work, especially in diseases which are highly heterogeneous.
0: Yeah, I, it's been one of the big stories in oncology uh, over the last 20 years. And and you see it with rare disease as well. It just it's been it hasn't come as quickly in neuroscience. And you know, everybody wants wants well, it well, to happen brain, yesterday.
1: <laughs> well, the brain is very complex and um it's not easily accessible. So we have additional challenges, but um I think we are all up for it. Um, And uh, certainly the team at Vigil is up for it. And we're gonna continue to um, execute on our path. And, you know, but ultimately science will take us where science takes us.
0: Well, Ivana, uh, not to use a bad pun, but to uh, (laughs) stay vigilant.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. I wish you well. Absolutely well. No, thank you. I really appreciate it and really enjoyed this conversation.
0: Thanks for joining me today, Ivana, on The Long Run. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.